When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The eyes to the left. So here we are at the Fruitcake Patisserie in South London. I'm Dan Bloom. I'm Mikey Smith. And we're meeting none other than UKIP's legendary press officer for 14 years. About I that. I think it was. About that. 13, 14, something like that. Gwaine Toller. So we're going to be talking to you about Brexit, UKIP and... What's Whatever. going to happen to them? Because, mm-hmm. you know, none of us really know anymore. Um, Especially you, I, I think we're not baffled, but um, we too have... Uh, well, who knows the future? So we've taken you to the fruitcake patisserie, and sadly they didn't have any fruitcake, which was a huge oversight on our part. It's a grievous error. But can you remind us why uh, we chose this particular establishment? Uh, uh, to, to gently mock, I suspect. Um, it would be why we have chosen this place because famously um, David Cameron on being given some data suggesting that UKIP were going to give him a bloody nose in some local elections um, it described us as fruitcakes um, lunatics I think loonies, fruitcakes and closets racists, racists mostly <laughs> mostly is it I know it's a terrible there's a comma and then mostly mostly um, over 50%, I think that means, doesn't it? Well, I don't know what it means, but it's certainly not the case. <laughs> so tell us briefly about, you know, your life, because you've had rather an interesting time before coming to UKIP, haven't you? Uh, various bits and pieces. I, 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 at one, one interview, famously, the, the interviewer said, I've been looking at your CV and there doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason about it. Do you have a single word that would cover that? And I went, mm, fun. <laughs> and he so accepted that. You've been in the army, is that right? Only territorial. Territorial. <coughs> yeah. um, uh, I was a. I, I worked on the um, cheat line for um, worms. So the, the computer, the, game. the computer game. Yes. So people would phone me up and say, "I'm stuck on level 16. What do I do Did now?" You really? Yes, yes. <laughs> That's amazing. That was an entertaining. That words. was an entertaining job. Um, so yes, that was. What, um, I what else? What else? All sorts. Um, your classic sort of uh, hospitality industry, I think it's called, to make you feel better. Um, cleaning the loos in a in a club in Knightsbridge. Um, then, oh, no. oh, oh yeah, precisely, I, 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 Italian waiter man for a while. Um, I, I, I modelled for Italian Vogue, no less. You lived in Paris. For Italian Vogue. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> that wasn't you have the to tell first us thing you mentioned. <laughs> no. <laughs> why, why didn't you leave with that? Because that's silly, isn't it? Um, but it was fun. Um, when was it? Of, when did oh, God, happen? I was... Way back. Uh, when, when you're the sort of age to do that sort of thing. So it's got to be 25, um, 25 years at I've, least. I've never been the age to do that sort of thing. <laughs> um, what, what did you wear? What, what did they... Put There's you this in? thing in, 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 in men's stuff. There is an eternal fashion, which is the chic anglaise. I look English, I sound English, even in, even in photographs I sound English. 
Um, so you look English, therefore there is a permanent need for lads that look English. Because Although, there's always tweed. Um, <laughs> there's always tweed. Uh, there, but there's always that sort of style, the classic English gentleman style, and therefore people who look the part, bubble, will always have a place in, in, in male fashion. For those who are not telepathic, uh, Wayne is currently sitting here on the hottest day of the year. It's about 26 degrees, and he's, of course, wearing a tweed waistcoat, which is a serious downgrade from the usual three-piece tweed. Yes. That was <laughs> you can tell it's serious. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's summer. So, um, we're getting that way. So just briefly, we're going to ask you about what you're doing now, which Indeed. is a museum of Brexit. Yeah. Are uh, people sick of Brexit? Do they want a museum? Um, it's more... Honestly, it's more of an archive of Brexit um, than a museum. I, I, as somebody pointed out, it's hardly the sort of place that you're going to wake up on a Saturday morning and say, hey, kiddies, let's go to that fun place, the Museum of Brexit. Um, but uh, to keep them quiet for a... A generation, probably. That's uh, if you do that to them. But um, no, it's a serious academic collection. The idea is that it's not just the two years of referendum or the period or the transition period. It's much more the lead up, the 50 years from the point where we joined, the people who kept the flame alive, the people who kept the idea of national independence alive. Um, and you've got to remember that the the movement to get. Brexit, to get national independence, to, to leave the European Union, was not an elite movement. It was a thing run by ordinary people. It was a, it, it was a very much a grassroots thing. And as such, um, what we're looking at uh, is it's not about the named figures. It's, OK, yes, of course, we'd love to have a pair of Nigel's mustard corduroys or the Thatcher jumper or, or, or various other things that are iconic in that way. But really, the archive is about the ordinary people, the people who week in, week out were doing pub meetings for five in the late right. 70s. It's, it's, it's that sort of thing. And, and obviously you've got the change from where the Labour Party, Tony Blair famously went into his election with a, 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 a unilateral withdrawalist campaign in, the, in 1982 in Beaconsfield. Uh, and then Labour changed sides and the Tories started being the Eurosceptics. So there was that big switch at that period. And so it is that, that story. How did the movement grow? UKIP were important because for the first time the movement gained a political focus. But people, people were unhappy for a long, long time. Um, I mean, I've been joking about it, but I, maybe for outreach, you can build your own butter mountain or drink your own wine lake. This was... This was this, it was that, in the late 70s, the massive overproduction um, of certain agricultural products, the CAP, the failings of the CAP, the inefficiency of the CAP, was the first time people in the UK, after we joined, started going, hold on, we're paying for French farmers to do what? Um, and that was the first moment that Euroscepticism started to go over the edge of a very, very niche interest for a very few people, uh, mostly constitutional lawyers and things of this sort who cared it suddenly became more of an issue. Um, but, as I say, it's the documents. So anything in the last 15 years is online. The, the campaigns are mostly, uh, the, the, are mostly online things, whereas what we're looking at is the, the, the flyers, the leaflets, the, thi the things of, for that pub meeting, for the, that sort of stuff is much more interesting and much more likely to have been lost already. So trying to collect it now before it's all gone I think is important. Um, so so where's, where's it going to go and who's going to fund it? 
Uh, as things stand, what we're doing is setting up a series of uh, regional collection centres where people can phone up and say, I've got a, a full scap file of bits and pieces from the 70s or 80s. Um, I'd love to get to donate it. So you go on the website, look, look at the map and go, oh, there's one not that far from me. Click on that, write them an email. And uh, then every donation is expected to have a donation record explaining who, who's given it, where it's from, why it's, why it's relevant, why it's important, so we can properly archive, properly study what's going on. So we have the regional centres at this point. After a while, we'll look at getting a central point where we can bring it all together, and at that point, the entertaining business of going through the files of thousands of bits and pieces starts, <laughs> and so the curating aspect starts at that point. Once we've got a clue how much we've got and what we've got, then we can start looking at funding and start looking at uh, raising money and start looking at thinking of somewhere specific. Um, there's been mentions of, uh, of Lincoln, there's been mentions of Sunderland, there's been mentions of various places. My guess is it's going to be outside central London, it's going to be outside London. Why not in an area that was a strong Brexit area? That makes sense, Hartlepool or, or Dudley or, or South Wales. Something like that would be sensible. Um, but the idea is it is, a, it is basically a serious academic exercise. The other side of the argument has a lot of new, sort of academic centres of European integration studies and they do a lot of this. Currently, the only collections I've heard of that exist are the LSE, which has Peter Shaw's uh, memoir, uh, documents, his, his archive, and Alan Skeds, because he's a teacher there. Um, but beyond that, and they have a, a collection of some of the 1974 campaign material. I believe the University of Cambridge has got a little, but they're not interested in it. They have it, but it's hardly something that they're proud of, or not this, that they sing about. Um, the, so having somewhere specific, and we recognise you can't have a collection of Brexit-related material or pro-independence pro uh, material without having the context of what else is going on. But we feel that our side of the argument, because it was grassroots, and because it wasn't the grand panjandrums, will it is necessarily less remembered, less recognised, less understood. And as such, we feel that actually it's more useful for those who are still campaigning for Remain to understand why they got it so blitheringly wrong. We only understand our, our future by understanding our past. And if they haven't got a clue, and they don't seem to have a clue, I mean. What better way? What better way to launch your latest campaign, expensive campaign, to overturn the referendum results than bringing in a multi-millionaire Hollywood celebrity, Jean-Luc Picard himself, to beam us bloody up? Um, so I, they just don't. They haven't got it yet. And maybe they're the people who need this archive more than we do. So, speaking of getting it witheringly wrong, hmm? you see what I did here. You keep debt. No, not the slightest. Um, How close did it get to being? It dead? was. Um, it was touch and go. They've got those sort of big ele electronic gadgets. You go thud, 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 thud on your chest. Someone putting a, a mirror under it. <laughs> yes, a little bit, but maybe it should have just been smelling salts. Um, the, but yes, financially it was it was a huge trouble. They were fine from. Uh, for the libel action from those three Labour MPs. There was uh, uh, financially the, the three largest um, wage earners in the party simultaneously resigned, including myself, um, in order that the party could survive because they could... Uh, just quartz and pine pots. Um, 
that being said, the 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 way that when uh, the current leader Charles Batten put out a all points bulletin help to the membership, they responded phenomenally. Within a month and a half, three hundred thousand was raised from only twenty four thousand members. So obviously, within the membership, they believe very strongly that UKIP has a purpose, is necessary, is useful. It would be it would be very easy for people to say, "We've done our job, move on." But they look at what's going on. They look at the shilly shallying around in Labour. They look at the failures of the uh, negotiation program, and they go, "Well, you know what? We might just be necessary." Um, so the the membership obviously care, and thus it is beholden upon the leadership to care as well. On sort of a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. there was talk at the time. I, I remember hearing people saying that they were working out of their living rooms at one point. Yeah. Were you? Were yeah. You, you were. But there again, I have done over the, over the years. I mean, there's many times that I've not had an office. My phone and a coffee shop with Wi-Fi has been the UK press office many times over the last ten years. So <laughs> you were the lead press officer. You were the only press officer for, for a many while. times. And then for other times, the, other times we had eight. To be a major political Indeed, party. but at other times we had eight. I remember. But, it, but it's not just that they didn't. Oh, you didn't have a London HQ. No, we have a Devon HQ. It's Devon Creamery. That's fair. Yes, next, next, to, next to a beer distribution centre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. How could, that, how could that possibly happen? Were you always packed? Uh, between 20 whenever, 20, 2004 uh, and this year, yes. Was everyone at well, hang on, when this year? When this year? When this year? Well, I'm, 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 I'm currently, I, uh, I'm contracted to give 20 hours consultancy a month. Um, and so it was the end of February I stopped being paid. Uh, but the chairman has gone voluntary, uh, the party director has gone voluntary, in order that the party can survive. I mean, uh, we, we believe in it, and therefore we take the hit ourselves. Fine. Was, ev- was everyone always paid on time? Yes. yes, yes, I think so. I, I, I switched. I was an employee of the European Parliamentary Group until 2009. Right. Um, no, that's a lie. I came over here um, in 2009 as the Parliamentary Group's press officer in Britain. And then, because you can't work on... Po- stupid, but you can't work on politics if you're yes. a Parliamentary Group... Press officer. Are the rules, hey? I, I, well, it's a pretty, pretty <laughs> silly one, man. I mean, you, you, why are you why are you actually give jobs for political officials and then tell them they can't work on politics? It like, baffles me. But, but I mean, that is a thing that Nigel got in a little trouble. Oh, and many and many people have. The, the, the fine that he says was for nothing. That's what it was for. Yeah. Um, so I, I knew what the rules were before I came back to the UK. So therefore, I was damn sure uh, not to breach them. Um, however. Come the 2015 election, um, I, it, was I going to stand or was I going to work as the press in the press office? And it was decided that uh, the party wanted me to stand. I couldn't do both. Um, and the party wanted me to remain as the press officer. You couldn't be the press officer in an election whilst taking money from the European taxpayer, understandably. And so, therefore, at that point, I became a UKIP employee rather than a European Parliamentary employee. So did you that hurt. <laughs> it's a 50% pay cut or something. Yeah. I, and all the benefits vanish in, in, into the smoke. But hey. So UKIP wanted you to become a candidate? MEP. No, I was happy to be a candidate. I was an MEP candidate previously, and I'd always stood down for that period of time. 
Um, but this was a national election. We were on between 13 and 20 in the polls. We were really pushing hard. We wanted sort of predicated people, and I couldn't spend my time campaigning in South Dorset while running a pleasure campaign in London. It, 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 it would have been impossible. That's why I was selected. Um, so I'd stopped running as an M MP uh, for Westminster, and I concentrated on the, uh, the press job. But it did mean that I had to resign as a European Parliament staffer. I worked the, ref I worked the election, and then after the election, I was taken on as a UK press officer. Is Gerard Batten, the current leader, being paid at the moment? Because you say a no. lot of people have got voluntary. No, uh, he is an MEP, and so therefore he gets paid as an MEP. He's not being paid by the party. Part of the problem with Henry Bolton was he was the first leader not to have a, a paid job in politics outside UKIP. And that was part of the problem, the whole money thing with him, how do I have to sell my house, and, uh, and so on and so forth, was that as somebody who was neither a London Assembly member or an MP or an MEP, he did need... Uh, he had, there was an income, but it's a full-time job. Uh, there, was a, there was an income issue there. Um, so Batten, as an MEP, gets paid as an MEP. Okay, so so you worked under a number of leaders. Yes, many of them Nigel. Many of them Nigel. Uh, who was the best one? Uh, it's got to be Nigel because I. Mean, there, there again, there again, Lord, Lord Pearson was lovely. <laughs> it was an absolute delight, um, and he really is an absolute delight. He's a, a, a thoroughly nice chap, um, though I think his famous method of resignation said, "I'm not really cut out for party politics." <laughs> You're the leader of a party, of a political party, mate. <laughs> but um, no, no, Nigel obviously isn't. Is, is I mean, no man is a hero to their valet, but he's obviously he, he is obviously inspirational. He's, he is an enormously charismatic chap, and he's a hell of a lot of fun. Um, and he really is a lot of fun. So uh, he's in 25 years working for the Tories and for working for UKIP and around doing some journalism, doing this, that, and the other that I've done in the last 20-odd years, I've met very few politicians who retain that almost childlike fascination in things and people. Most people, once they get elected, just stop being that interested in what other people have to say. Nigel still maintains that huge interest, and I think his radio show shows that he's actually interested in what people are saying to him in order to respond. Isn't a part of that the, the delight in mischief? Oh, there's certainly that. Of course, of course. But the never under never mistake the fact that he doesn't take himself too seriously for thinking he doesn't take the politics seriously. He has always taken the politics deadly seriously. It's just that this is a serious thing. I'm not an entirely serious person, um, and you can do both. And actually, that's always been part of his charm. There is always this. Uh, we always knew the chap had legs of clay, but he never tends to hide the legs. He's like, this, this is who I am, warts and all sort of stuff. And there is something terribly appealing in a politician who doesn't pretend to be wonderful. What does he like to work for day to day? Mostly great fun. Um, Stressful? At times, but only, only if you'd made an absolute pig's ear of things. Um, if he had or if you had? Either. Did you ever feel that, because, you know, Nigel has some controversial comments to his name, shall we say, did you ever feel, personally, that he sort of strayed over the line? 
very, very rarely. I mean, I... Up with which I will not put stuff. Uh, very rarely. I mean, Nigel is, in his gut, a classical liberal. Uh, he doesn't demand fealty to a line, an absolute line, from others in his party. And so the party doesn't demand an absolute fealty to the line from him. Famously, he was always in favour of legalising drugs. Um, he's been a question time and said it, but he, as he said, I can't persuade the party of this. This is what I think, and I'm prepared to say it, but I know I'm not going to get it past the NEC. It's not going to get... So th this... As long as the key core things on, on the referendum and on, or, or getting Britain out of the EU are maintained, um, there was a, a liberalism in, in his approach to others in the party and their positions. So I think it's a... When, when there's a hell of a lot of stress, when there's an awful lot bearing down on him, and because he was... Um, he's a... He knocks down the door, he doesn't do the dishes. Um, and there, there was he often had frustrations with um, other people within the party getting on with their job. He would, there were a few times in that period he was in, in a senior position that he tried to divest himself of certain responsibilities and others weren't quite up to the job, so therefore he'd have to take them back. So there became a frustration there on his part. Um, and I, that's understandable. I mean, he tried to give up sort of fundraising and gave it to somebody else and no funds were raised, so, so he had to take it back. And, and because he'd been so involved and so personally involved and so amenable and approachable and accessible over the years, and because he refused to change his phone number, virtually every single person in the party had his phone number. So you'd get the, you had the secretary of the Khan branch phoning up about some complaints about the treasurer who had dip their fingers in the till and take a fiver out of the, of the bucket at the end of the meeting. And, and he'd get that sort of phone call because everybody had his number and he's always been terribly open, which meant that his job as leader wasn't just a job as leader as other political parties had, but it was everything. Um, and that, when he was talking about getting his life back after the referendum, that's what he's talking about. It's not the, the headline politics. It's all the stuff that went with it in a small party that was largely driven by the, the sheer force of will of one man. Um, We've asked you who the best leader was, and that's obvious. Who's the worst leader you've worked with? Oh, that would be rude. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> that's that's why I'm asking you. Um, I would say, very early on, the first leader I worked with was Roger Knappman. Roger Knappman was a former Tory whip, MP for Stroud, got elected to the European Parliament. Nigel was the group leader in Europe and Roger was the party leader. And I remember, and it, this is just a, a version of a thing, one thing, example that illustrates it. He'd come storming up to me and said, Farage has got on Newsnight. Why can't you get me on Newsnight? Why can't you get me in the press? Why you, you, Farage keeps on doing this, that, the other. Roger, have you said anything or done anything? No, but why can't you get me on the press, in the press? Uh, the, the selling point, I'm the leader of UKIP, doesn't really do much. You have to, I'm the leader of UKIP and I've done something, now that I can go with. Um, and so the, uh, an expectation, um, an expectation. Uh, I think Diane James had a very hard time. I think the, uh, the experience of being spat at by some youth on Waterloo Station a couple of days after becoming leader uh, there she is, a, a middle-aged lady, quite small, being attacked by some hulking great goon. Um, 
did affect her badly, um, and so that I don't think it's fair. The 18, her 18 days um, interregnum uh, was not ideal, but I don't I don't think you've got time enough to work out whether they're a good leader or not at that point. Um, you talk about it being hard on her, but it's hard on you as well because you know you're the invisible figure. How many times in these 14 years are you on the verge of quitting? Just saying, I've had enough. I've been amazingly lucky. Some blithering fool has given me perfectly good money to be a hooligan and cause as much trouble to the government. I've loved it. Um, absolutely loved it. I, I really, I mean, what, what, a, what a wonderful opportunity for somebody who has also a slightly not that serious approach to the world. Um, the, there are moments when you just sit there and go, what? What, 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 what just happened there when you get phoned by some bloke and saying oh, um, the Bristol Post is going to have this story about me tomorrow what is it oh well you know I'm a candidate yeah I'm also a porn star really okay right um, moments like this but they're, they're funny they are they're entertaining they make they, 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 they're the sugar in the tea they, they, they... was there ever a moment where you found yourself defending something that you knew was indefensible I can't pretend that having to deal with Miss um, Marnie's comments were particularly edifying. Is no, I found uh, that very, very hard indeed. Um, this is Joe Marnie's yeah. comments about. Uh, I found that uh, very, very hard. Mark. But in most cases, um, in most cases, if it was indefensible, they'd be gone. Um, I, I obviously, I love. Godfrey Bloom to pieces, but I did have issues with Bongo Bongo Land. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I know. I, um, you will. You, these people you Twitter, miss. These, um, these people you will miss. But the but the, the point is, is that in most cases, I also am a very much a laissez-faire sort of fellow. And and what would happen is I would somebody would come in. One of the gentlemen of the fourth estate or the ladies of the fourth estate would contact me. And it would come in, and I'd do a sort of basic triage, which was, is it malice? If it's malice, they can go. And I would, camp, I would get to the party secretary and say, look, this is malicious, this is unpleasant, this is vile, this, this, we cannot accept this. Um, or is it eccentric? If it's mere eccentricity, we could live with eccentricity. We're English, damn it. Um, and so, so, for example, Gay Floods Man. Yes. I read, I read what he'd written. He wasn't suggesting that anything unpleasant should happen. He wasn't suggesting that, that anything nasty or, or any legislation should be brought in to, to, uh, to, 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 to make the life of uh, homosexuals worse. He was merely saying that the floods were punishment from God for bringing in gay marriage without a manifesto commitment. Um, <laughs> so it was the manifesto commitment. That was important. That was important. Ah, right. And so... But you so seem to be defending it, Wayne. I mean, no, no, I'm merely, I'm merely defending his right to beliefs. be odd. Um, and if you look at any of us in this land for five minutes, you'll find something slightly odd. I mean, Mikey there's wearing a tie and a short sleeve shirt. Hey, um, it's it's odd. a warm day. <laughs> so, so, so what I mean is that there's a difference between malice and eccentric viewpoints and eccentric activity. And if it's malice, there was uh, one guy a year or so ago who, and it, it didn't make the press because we dealt with it, Beforehand, I heard about something. Uh, he was a senior official in in, Newcomb, in London, um, and he was an anti-Semite. Within three days, he was gone. Um, what did he say? What did he do? At some meet, at one of our meetings, at uh, a London uh, London group meeting, he'd basically 
attacked another member of the committee uh, with sort of anti-Semitic brudery. Um, but he was gone within two, three days. What's his name? Um, I'm trying to remember his name now. I remember the person who was rude to the, the name of that. But I mean, th this is the, we did. If it was malice, it would be dealt with. Um, and there's only been, in my time at UKIP, there's only been a few occasions where there's a difference between ignorance that can be educated and, uh, or but actual proper, proper racism. Um, in those cases, we dealt with. There was a famous case of one of our councillors in Thanet who was filmed for some programme and she just said, what? I don't decide that I, I, I crossed the road to avoid black people. What the f***? Um, sorry, but uh, it, 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 was, it, was, it was truly jaw-dropping. And again, gone. Um, whereas a level of ignorance isn't necessarily malice. And so one has to try and balance that. Um, we are... We are nothing if we're not a, a party of, of some level of freedom of speech. Much of what we say at a policy level is perceived by the, our opponents sometimes as wrong, bad, monstrous, and we feel it is not. Um, and there are, there are times when um, our opponents, both in political parties and in... Uh, in uh, in think tanks and pressure groups and all the rest of it, build up dossiers uh, about how dreadful our candidates are. I mean, hope not hate did it and all the rest of it. I remember one lovely time, I think it was 2013, council elections, and then suddenly, one morning, I started getting phone calls from various different papers about councillor so and so, or candidate so and so here, and candidate so and so there, and candidate so and so there. And, and it was like, it was like the first night of the Somme. I mean, each one of these things requires requires a you take the call you do the research you've got to check it's true you've got to get in touch with the person is it true did you say this didn't you dum -dum 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 -dum. those are the days when everybody said oh but my Facebook's been hacked, oh, it's been hacked. Um, no it hasn't you silly man um, but you get all that but you had to get you had to give them fair grounding that doesn't take half an hour that takes quite a lot of effort and by that time it had three more and it just got it just got silly. So I, I remember um, I got the son to send over over. How many of these have you got? Can you just send them all over at once, and I'll just go through it and come back to you. And so this this document came over. There are about forty of the bloody things, and including you call yourself a part of the people. Here's a photograph of this fellow going to a May ball in black tie. Yeah, okay. Um, I but it was a PDF. No, it was a Word document actually, and I clicked on properties and it said Conservative Central Office <laughs> at which point I ceased to take it too much too seriously recently mm -hmm. uh, uh, Andy Wigmore who was sorry I knew you were going to pull that face Andy Wigmore uh, some, some evidence has been given to a, a select committee where he has said that during the referendum campaign Leave EU which yeah. was uh, an organisation to which we were from, associated yeah. which UK was associated I mean, he, he mentioned borrowing propaganda techniques from the Nazis. I don't want to go too far into that because I don't think that's necessarily helpful. But what... Just what, for the listeners there, he, uh, Gwen just bashed his head in frustration <laughs> on the window of the shop. <laughs> but but the, the point he was making was that it was, it was sort of mischief writ large in an effort to... Yeah. To, to 
to get people interested, to, to get to make headlines. To, to a certain extent, I'm sure that's what he was meaning. Do you think that was... Did, did, did that ever get to the point where you thought it had gone too far? How many times a day? Almost, almost constantly, um, in, in the sense that... But there, this is Andy, right? This yeah. is Mr Wingmore. Andy is great fun, he's a huge amount of fun, but, as I have told a number of your colleagues, um, as I see stories appear in the papers, you've been speaking to Andy again, haven't you? We're just about to launch a march of 500,000 people to the Supreme Court. No, we're not! <laughs> <laughs> um, for example, Andy... I think Andy trolls himself, let alone everybody else. Um, Andy enjoys it. But, um, uh, yes, he was communications director. That's because he's a great friend of Aaron Banks. It's not because he did the communications directing job. Um, I, they're, they're, they're buddies, they're friends, and fine. Um, but I would, they, they would be on looking at Twitter at 10 o'clock at night, starting to see the headlines come in. He's, you know, he's, he's been at it again, hasn't he? And so, yes, almost on a daily basis sometimes. Well, I think there's, a, there's sort of an important point here, because we're here in a fruitcake shop, fruitcakes and loonies mm-hmm. uh, has been, uh, uh, you know, uh, have, have been traditionally the people who've you know, caused problems for, for you, Kim. True. And this is people sort of at the top. I'll give you an example. I'll give an example. Uh, Farage got elected in 1999. Yeah. Um, and he went to all the committees, he went and turned up in the Parliament, he said his piece, it was all very serious and grown up and academic and looking at the, at the lines of legislation and commenting on that and the impact of that on the UK economy and UK society and all the rest of it. Nobody gave a flying hoot. Nothing. He stands up and is rude about um, uh, Herman Van Rompuy and suddenly people are interested. Now, what message is the press telling us? What message... Is the fourth estate telling us about how to sell our message? Do we be serious and grown up and legitimate, entirely legitimate, and everything proper where you don't care, or do we every now and then shake things up again? So it's our fault. Well, you you provide, you till the soil. We merely put seeds in it. Um, and if if it is the case, and it is the case, that at times we've over-egged things. No, we haven't over-egged fat, we've over-egged certain things. Uh, and, and the tone has been... tone has been... There have been certain facts that have uh, been over-egged. I hope I, hope I haven't. Uh, but, it, but the tone has been uh, more playful or jocular or in-your-face. There is a reason for that. Particularly when you've got to remember that the Brexit side of the argument did not have access to the media, did not have access to business, did not have access to Westminster. We didn't get invited to TV studios. We didn't get these things. How do you break through? Nigel Farage has been on questions. Latterly. Constantly. Latterly. Um, he gets invited to TV studios all the time. Yes, but that's because we broke through. Before he was rude about Herman Van Rompuy, nothing. Um, I, when I was first a press officer, it took me a month to get half an inch in a newspaper. As soon as that happened, people were phoning me up. Couldn't believe it. This is what happens to normal press officers. Journalists phone you up. Um, so, it, it, a lesson was taught to us by the media, and we learned that lesson. So, just in a word, boasting about using Nazi propaganda tactics, acceptable or not acceptable? Um, certainly not what I'd have said, but I don't speak for Andy. Fair enough. <laughs> so, 
we were going to round off with a little quiz <laughs> of famous quotes by UKIP members. You've got to tell us who said what. Is that all right? All right, try me. Right. I'll start, and shall we take turns? Let's. My horse is standing there, right? And this donkey came up. John Rhys Evans. <laughs> shall I finish the quote? No. <laughs> this donkey came up, which is male, and I'm afraid tried to rape my horse. You okay? <laughs> uh, it was a joke. Yes. All right, OK. <laughs> um, the incidence of homosexuality is much higher among people who have been sexually abused as children. Ooh. Female? No. 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 I've forgotten. That was uh, David Curtin. Right. Oh, of course, of course, yes, of course, of course, yeah. These last two people that you listeners may not have heard of are, are both people who stood for leader. Indeed. At the same time. Yeah. Here's another one. I think you alluded to this one earlier, so it should be quite easy. The only people I do have problems with are Negroes, and I don't know why. I don't know yeah, whether there's something in my psyche... Extraordinary woman in Thanet. ...karma from a previous Counselor. life... You still don't know her name, do no. you? Or whether something happened to me as a very young person. Because that sometimes happens, doesn't it? But I really do have a problem with people with Negroid features. Yep. As I said, we chucked her out within days. You can't remember her name, can you? No. <laughs> she was a counsellor. I know she was. We Roseanne, had hundreds of them. Roseanne Duncan was her name. I believe you. <laughs> I got on the train the other night. It was rush hour from Charing Cross. Nigel. We're going to have to What's finish it, sorry. <laughs> it was the shopper going out. It was the stopper going out. We stopped at London Bridge, New Cross, Hither Green. It wasn't until we got past Grove Park that I could actually hear English being audibly spoken in the carriage. Does that make me feel slightly awkward? Yes. And lastly, you can come into Britain from anywhere in the world and get diagnosed with HIV and get all the retroviral drugs that cost up to £25,000 a year. That could also be Nigel during the debate. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is put the NHS there for British people. Yeah. yeah. We're all of are you happy with all of those? Do you agree with them? Well, I'm certainly not happy with point two. <laughs> no, I'm not quite happy with point two at all. I think Nigel was making a, a valid point about the change in society, particularly in London. Uh, there's significant change uh, that was never... Nobody ever gave permission for it. Um, he, he wasn't giving a moral... He wasn't saying... It is absolutely wrong that I can't hear some, uh, uh, an English voice. So but he, he, wasn't, he wasn't positive. Yes, he, he said he made him feel uncomfortable. Right. That's slightly different from saying it's wrong. Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Um, at times. Not always. Generally not. But there are moments. Um, there are moments where I find things just peculiar. Um, but that's me. I'm not, I'm not, I don't speak for everybody in this city. I don't speak for everybody in the country. I know personally. But just because I feel uncomfortable... Here's the with, thing. With people not speaking English. Here, here's the thing. Tolerance is not about agreeing with something. It's about disagreeing with thing, something and accepting it as part of society. I am tolerant of these things that I find uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean I can't... I, I'm allowed to feel uncomfortable. Um, but it's perfectly okay. It's okay. It's just me. I feel a bit uncomfortable about certain things. Fair enough. I've got, I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable. Must we all feel comfortable because the liberal elite tell me I must feel uncomfortable? No. That's not how humans are. 
But do I tolerate it? Do I accept it? Is it part of our society? Yes. One final question. Yes. You're known around Westminster circles as quite the raconteur. Oh, God. <laughs> Otherwise known as gossip, yes. Can you, tell <laughs> us, can you tell us a story that we won't have heard? We'll have to wait until my book comes out for that. Oh, uh, come on, give us a brief. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, 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 one of my, possibly my favourite ever, uh, one of those jaw-dropping moments when the, when the phone goes, uh, was uh, one of our uh, council candidates in Paisley, I think, in Glasgow. It didn't get as much coverage as I was expecting at the time, uh, where she had... You can imagine this, this, this jobbing sort of small, small town hack uh, gets this, and he'd asked all the council candidates in his, this ward to write their, hello, my name is Fred, and I've got two children, I work in the Undertakers, and I've been involved in local party politics for this many years, and I'm a councillor, I'm a governor of the local school, you know the stuff. Yeah. Um, and she said um, something on the lines of, I often go to the zoo and, and, and gorillas turn me on. <laughs> oh no, I wrote that story. I mean, that, story. <laughs> that, that has got to be uh, a, a thing of absolute glory. So, um, so did you. And every line of her, her statement made me think it was actually uh, something from Private Eye rather than. Yes, because she justified it. <laughs> I know. And you started defending it. Did, like, you, <laughs> did you talk to her about that? Uh, yes, I did. So, um, and so again, what, but this was, this was again eccentric, not ma- malicious. What did you say? Did you do that? Yes. Oh, okay. Fine. Did, did you ask her why? Um, what, what it was about the gorillas that... No, no, I thought that was probably pushing a bit too far. I mean, some veils should be kept. <laughs> is, is, there a certain point, <laughs> is there a certain point in these conversations where you think, just now we're done here? Well, the thing is, as I said, what I tried to do was, was there malice then? There was no malice, in which case, eccentricity, why not? Um, I, have, I have no problem with that, and that was distinctly and deeply eccentric. Her other view is that she wanted to, want to bring in public executions in George Square, I think, in Glasgow. She thought that would be quite good for the morale of the people. I think it would probably be a fantastic idea if we draw a veil over that. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank uh, you very much. Wayne Toler. No problem. UKIP press officer for 14 years. You can find us at mirror.co.uk slash politics and subscribe and read what we write and all the rest of it. And we're waiting with eager anticipation for the book. <laughs> Indeed. I must write it. <laughs> <laughs> The eyes to the left.